Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. I mean, they always have a big mouth. They always talk a lot. So it happened before. It's going to happen again. Welcome to another episode of Fantastic Tennis, where the fans get to know their favorite pros. I'm your host, John Garica. Each week, I'm joined by a major fan of the sport that, like most of us, love to talk, follow, play, and give their unsolicited opinions about the sport we all love. And to help balance that out, we're always joined by an expert of the game that has been there and knows exactly what it feels like to win those big matches. We get to pick their brain and ask all the questions we've always wanted to ask our favorite players. This is Fantastic Tennis. This week's fan guest is a WTA super fan living in Washington, D.C. He carves out his time for tennis in between working for PWC in a role centered around diversity and inclusion. So I was happy to include him on today's show. It's my buddy, Brennan Marshall. Hey, Brennan, what's up? How are we doing? Thanks for having me. And I like Edwards, inclusion and uh, inclusive. So yeah, thanks for joining my virtual tennis bubble today. Love it. I'm looking forward to today. I, I think we should bring her right out. In April of 2000, this player joined legends like Davenport, Sanchez Vicario, Hingis, Navratilova, and Shriver to become only the 12th women's tennis player in the open era to become the number one doubles player in the world. How awesome is that? A promising singles career saw her climb all the way to a high of 29 in the world as she collected wins against Dementieva, Rubin, Kornikova, and Capriati. But it was her double skills that carved her name onto two Grand Slam doubles trophies, plus 12 additional WTA Tour titles. One at the 1999 Wimbledon with partner Lindsay Davenport, and a mixed title in 2001 at the Australian Open with Ellis Ferreira. It would also be in 2001 in which she would find out that she had a rare form of leukemia and took a break from the sport that she had once sat atop. 2002 saw her not only win the WTA Comeback of the Year award, with a clean bill of health, but she would play just her second event at the U.S. Open with a roaring crowd behind her as she would play legend Serena Williams in an unbelievable first-round night match. After retiring, she stayed connected to the tennis world by commentating for the Tennis Channel, and in 2010, she wrote her critically acclaimed memoir that addressed her toughest opponent yet, life. Very excited to welcome Karina Morario to the show today. Karina, how are you? Great. Well, after that intro, I just feel like I need to sit back and bask in just the the niceties of what you just said. I, I forget that I actually had a life. Now I have two kids before the kids. So it was um, fun to take a trip down memory lane, and I'm looking forward to being with you guys. Well, absolutely. That's what this show's all about. It's about taking a trip down memory lane. You said it yourself. But before we jump into it today, I, I did want to ask how you're doing during the COVID break. Are you doing okay? Your family doing okay? Yeah, we're doing great. Um, it's definitely been challenging, of course, as it has been for um, the world, really. So generally speaking, we are doing really well. Everyone's healthy and our kids are actually in school in person. So that's been a blessing. And, you know, we've, we're just, we're lucky in a lot of ways. So, but we're praying for the country and the world and for health and healing and protection. And hopefully we will be out of this sooner rather than later. Absolutely. Wear your masks, everyone. You're in California, so you're in complete lockdown right now. Pretty much. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad we could be a sense of entertainment for you today, at least. Yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to a fun hour. Uh, I've always said your last name is short, but intimidating. I don't know how many people have mangled your last name. Probably <laughs> many in your in your life. My last name is a little difficult as well. So Morario, uh, how many like variations have we heard? A million at least. Oh, multiple. I mean, I can't even count them. It's I think it's the two vowels at the end that throw people off, but it's definitely, it's, you know, my mom always says, you say it like, how are you? So that's just, that's how it, her cue is for people. It kind of helps. Where are you? How are you? That'll be the tagline for today. There you go. <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm doing good. All right, team, let's- Oh, I do get that. I do get that. Hi, this is Karina Mararyu. And they're like, I'm fine. Thanks. How are you? Oh, all right. All right. Good. To, all right. Well, well you think I'm polite, which is nice. You are polite. I can tell in two minutes that I like you already. I like this report. All right, team, before we jump into some recent tennis, I thought we'd start the pod today with my favorite way to start any service game. That's 15 love. It's a super simple game. I'm going to throw 15 questions at you, Karina, and you just respond as quickly as you can with the first thing that pops in your head. Okay. Uh-oh. All right. Are we ready? Let's do this. <laughs> first question. Name the first professional tennis match you remember watching live or on television. Something to do. So Steffi Graf was in it for sure. At least she's the name that pops into my head because I watched her a lot growing up. That's a good one. And you played her. We'll get to talk about it later. Name a player from your playing days that you still chat with today. Um, oh, well, I don't really talk to that many. Robin White is the, she wasn't, we, our careers didn't overlap, but she's one of my closest friends still. So, uh, Robin White. What was the first nice thing you bought yourself with your tennis earnings? A good question. That one I know. It was a Tiffany cross necklace after I made the Fed Cup team. Was it 99? Yeah. The first time I made the Fed Cup team, that was my present to myself. And that was the, one of the nicer things I've ever bought myself, really. That's a great keepsake. I love that. Number four, first word that pops into your head when I say the name Lindsay Davenport. Mm, first word that pops into my head. Um, gosh, I, I what I think of when I think of her now and saying this is um, it's not a word, but it was just it was she was the toughest opponent for me to face. So toughest opponent. There we go. Let's we'll talk about that, too. Number five, best free advice you can give our listeners about becoming a good doubles player. Chemistry. Yeah. Number six, name someone currently on the men's or women's tour that you don't know, but looks like they'd be a lot of fun to hang out with. That I don't know. Hmm. Uh, let me think about this. So this is, um, you know, who I don't know, actually, personally is Rafa Nadal. So there there you go. we go. <laughs> I think he would be a blast to hang out with on his big boat. Yeah. He has a big yacht. I'll go on Rafa's yacht. And Orca, Spain. Any yeah. day. Absolutely. Let's go to Spain. Let's book it. Number seven, best tennis match you ever called or commentated during your time with tennis channel. Oh, you're a savant and I am not. I'm so far from it. So I can't even, if this is supposed to be rapid fire, I'm clearly failing. Um, <laughs> gosh, I can't, I honestly cannot remember. And some of them honestly were at three o'clock in the morning. True. So it could have been a really good map, but I just, I completely. We'll just say Serena just, because I'm sure one of those was fantastic. <laughs> we'll just go with that. All right. Number eight, someone you didn't get to play doubles with, but you wish you would have during your career. You know, I always, she retired before I think I, I was playing a lot, but Gigi Fernandez, you know, Natasha Brava. I uh, absolute best doubles players. Yeah, that's a good one. If you're going to pick one. I mean, yeah. 
I mean, sorry, Robin, when you're listening to this, I'm, she says you next. I just edited it out. So it's okay. We're good. Number nine, the worst thing about being a professional tennis player. The constant travel. Yeah. Number 10, you get one singles and one doubles match from your career to turn into a win. Which one do you pick? That's an easy one, actually. Amelie Moresmo, first round Australian Open, two match points, and I lost, and she made the final that year. Oof. Wow. That's a good one. And then the whole rest of the time, the rest of the two weeks, I had to hear after every match she played or during every match that she played that Mararu had match points against her in the first round. (laughs) Oh, man. How'd you do in doubles that year? Um, That's a great question. I think I mean, you were there for a while, so semis, there we yeah. go. There we go. Fi- Maybe that was, yeah, semis or final, I think. What about doubles? Can you think of a match you, you'd run? One of those finals, I'm sure. Oh, that's an easy one. Australian Open final. We lost 6-4 in the third to Venus and Serena, and we were up a break in the third, 3-1. I would have guessed that one too, for sure. That, that was okay. See, the, the bad ones are emblazoned in my memory. <laughs> when someone finds out you, are, you were a professional tennis player, what's the first question that they ask you? Did you love it? Number 12, in your opinion, best player in WTA history without a Grand Slam? Um, gosh, I, I mean, it's funny because it was like Kleisters, Wozniacki. I mean, Wozniacki is the one that always comes to my mind first, but she has one. So I'd have to, I don't know, what's your, what are yours? Oh, gosh, so many. Yeah. You, name a surface and I can tell you what I think. I mean, I... <laughs> I mean, they, I mean, everyone should have, you know, everyone has their own, their own uh, amazing surface that they should have won on. I don't, I, w- I would have loved to have seen someone. I, I like old school. I like your era. I wanted to see Kornikova win a, win a Grand Slam. I would yeah. have loved that. I would have loved uh, Petrova, Nadia Petrova or someone, you know, a Dementieva for sure. Dementieva um, is a good one because she was knocking on the door a lot. A lot of them. A lot of them. Number 13, describe yourself off court in one word. A mom. Number 14, name a celebrity or another tennis player that you've been mistaken for. I, when I was younger and I can't remember, maybe Sarah Gilbert, was she on um, the Roseanne when I was younger? Was that, is that her name? Yeah. Yeah, she was. Yeah. That's okay, Sarah Gilbert. So yeah. When I was younger, people used to tell me I looked like her. I naturally went right to Little House in the Prairie with Melissa Gilbert, and I hope that's not showing my age, but but yes, Sarah Gilbert was on Roseanne. Yes, absolutely. Is that, I, I could be butchering that, but she was the curly-haired actress on Roseanne. Yes. I see it. I see it. And finally, you're an accomplished tennis player, and you've had a great career. What do you hope that your fans will remember you for? Being a fighter. 100%. Well done. Uh, that awesome. <laughs> and a nice person. And a nice person. Yeah. Hopefully. That's like tennis therapy a little bit. Well done. I know that was tough. That was tough. All right. There's a lot going on this week, guys. I want to jump into some recent tennis. I'd love to hear both your opinions. Australian Open announced a February 8th start date. I've also been told on good authority that Indian Wells is eyeing an October calendar slot instead of March. So a lot of events scrambling at the moment, which is not great news to start off 2021. But we did get some great news that was announced this week. As Sports Illustrated named Naomi Osaka as its sports person of the year. The reigning U.S. champion became a huge force to be reckoned with. Not only was she magic on the court, but off the court as she used her powerful platform to raise awareness of violence against Black Americans and really allowed for important family discussions to be had as to why she was bringing attention to the names that she donned on her COVID masks during the Open. In a year marred by injustice, Sports Illustrated definitely got this one right. Karina, I wonder, what's your take on Osaka's impact to the sport of tennis? It's 
it's amazing and we certainly needed it and um, she's a great ambassador for the sport and you know she's an activist and I think we need that in in every sport and she's she's drawing awareness to causes that clearly um, are close to her heart and deserve a lot of recognition so I think anytime we have an athlete that has the big picture in mind and is more than just an athlete but an ambassador and has those causes close to their hearts and is advocating for those I think it's a great thing and I think it draws even more attention to those causes and I think that she's very deserving of that clearly. Absolutely. Brennan, from a fan perspective, how impressed with Naomi were you both on and off the court? I know you're a big fan of hers. You know, incredibly, you know, you understand sometimes why folks in the public eye sometimes don't take those stances because the media, you know, can twist and turn depending, you know, on on what you're said. So I just think it was incredibly brave, again, as as Karina said, for her to step up and and use her platform, you know, to do a little plug for, you know, what I, I do. I work for the CEO Action for Racial Equity which is all about advancing equality, racial equity, specifically for the African-American community uh, through public policy, you know, and, and kind of PwC and with our coalition really think, you know, big business needs to really step in and, and fill that void where uh, unfortunately, perhaps the government and other folks, because of a variety of reasons, ha- haven't been able to do. So to see that public recognition, to really see her take advantage of the moment um, I, I think was inspiring. And I think it really does transcend sports, which I think we're seeing people react to. Absolutely. You know, from Jacob Blake to uh, in the bubble to every single tweet, every Instagram live that Naomi Osaka had, it lived up to what the idea of that next generation of what the WTA could and hopefully will look like. I know your generation, Karina, and my generation, we didn't have social media. It wasn't a platform that we had. And I think Naomi's using that goodness. in the right way. So absolutely. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah, you're right, actually. I feel, I feel for the players these days and that are on social media has a lot of blessings, but I, there are a lot of critics as it is. So to have that to be, be so public, I think is, is an added challenge and element that, um, not, not a lot of people talk about. No, it's, it's a 2020 topic for sure, but sports illustrated well done on that one. Naomi wasn't the only person winning awards this year. I want to talk about my friend Vika Azarenka. She just won comeback player of the year. What a great year for Vika between Naomi and Serena, Jen Brady, Azarenka's run. I was loving the New York City bubble, even if it was fanless. She had some great wins. She made the final of Ostrava, beat Ken in Love and Love in Rome. Very interesting. Finished the year at number 13. Karina, as a former Comeback Player of the Year recipient yourself, like Vika, you must have been happy to see her star shine bright again. Yeah, I, it's funny. I just, I didn't think there was ever any doubt that she was going to come back. I mean, she's just such a naturally gifted tennis player. So powerful. I just, you know, she's young, she's healthy. And uh, there's no question that being a mom and having a baby poses tremendous challenges. And that's the balance has got to be really difficult because I have a hard time balancing it just and just being a mom, let alone being a professional tennis player as well. Um, but I just feel like her talent was going to transcend that anyway. And I'm super happy for her and just to see, you know, that's it for and Serena and there's Kim Kleisters and moms out there representing. So it's pretty awesome. Now it's just the norm. I mean, I'm waiting for you to make your comeback. I, I, maybe this is where you, a good platform for you. You're a mom. You can so I just announce it right here. Not Wait, well at the end, <laughs> let's, let's give a little more anticipation. We'll wait till the very end. Oh man. <laughs> Most improved player went to Iga Sviantek. That was well done, in my opinion. 
Brennan, thoughts on player of the year going to Sophia Kennan? It made the most sense results-wise, but do the fans agree? <laughs> I feel like that's a trick question, and I should have seen this coming as I was preparing. You know, what she was able to accomplish this year, you know, w- was great. And there were, you know, in a very truncated season, a lot of great results. Now, as, as you mentioned, that 6-0, 6-0 drubbing that she received that I might have thrown some popcorn in the air while I was watching. You know, that was interesting. But again, at such a young age, the determination, you see the focus in her eyes and you see how much she wants it. So, you know, kind of regardless of your overall thoughts on how she plays the game, just, you know, the way she comes at you, 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 what can't you love about it? Agreed. Karina, I know the current crop of Iga, Sofia, Naomi, Andreescu, Sabalenka, they're super impressive, but you're coming from a Davenport, Hingis, Capriati, Celis, Graf generation. Uh, how impressed have you been this year with the youngsters? You know, it was interesting. I was looking at the rankings and the list of players. I think that for a while it, we saw a trend of older players kind of coming into their own and having success and like a Schiavone comes to mind where she won her first Grand Slam in her late, late twenties. I think she was 29 maybe, or John, you could probably tell me exactly. She was. Um, (laughs) But, and now it's sort of, and that Hingis, Capriati, that era was like the teenage. So it was just an interesting swing. And now I think we're, we're kind of going back to a little bit of a younger generation and having success earlier this year has just felt so weird in so many ways. And I feel like it would be nice to just have things back to normal and see how these players perform in just in front of the crowds. And and just, it's still, there's so much pressure in so many different ways, but it'll be interesting to see when things do get back to normal, whenever that is. And assess things then as well. Excellent point. You know, I love, I'm a huge Iga Sviantec fan now. I hope she, she said in an interview today, she wants to be top 10 for the next 10 years. I love that attitude. But like you said, to your point, does Sviantec win the French with a raucous crowd behind any other match that's playing? So yeah, who knows? All right, guys. Um, I do have a question for Brennan. I know you're an avid tennis player. How did tennis become such a big part of your life? You know, we... Grew up not particularly in a, a tennis family, you know, but in the summer we kind of had our, our local park district and, you know, signed up. I feel like a lot of us in the U.S. perhaps as a small child were signed up for every sport under the sun. And tennis was the one that, you know, I just loved. And you can play, especially when you're younger, in the summer, anytime during the day, if you can find, you know, a, a free court. I was lucky enough to grow up in a community where, you know, that really was true. But there was kind of nothing like getting out there at 10 a.m. and, and coming home at 6 p.m. after playing a bunch of your friends. And again, like I said, I had the opportunity where we had access to public courts, which I actually, you know, think was um, a huge conduit to why we were able to do it. I love it. Absolutely. Um, I know you're a big fan of Karina's. Can I ask, when did she pop on your radar? Yeah, I I think there was a few points. One, I am a baseliner and my net game is leaves something to be desired. And so there was that brief time in those early 2000s where I thought, all right, let's let's try that that all around game. I, I, I can do this. And, you know, kind of seeing the, the way you float around the court and came in and were so natural. So I tried that for about a couple of weeks and realized that I was never going to be able to do, you know, do that. And um, again, I, I think really the way, you know, you started off with how would you like to be remembered as a fighter and nice person? And I think kind of, it says it right there that you can have that tenacity 
you know, on the court, but it just was so obvious, you know, how you, how you lived your life off the court. So, you know, that's really how it started. And obviously the, the overall game and the attitude. I love it. Absolutely. All right, guys, I'd love to play a game called I 40 love you. It's going to be Brennan versus Karina and a fan versus favorite tennis match trivia showdown all about Karina's career and life. Brennan, I'm going to ask you two questions about Karina's career. And then Karina, I'm going to ask you two questions that kind of sort of have to do with Brennan, but more so about you. Okay? <laughs> Don't worry. Okay. If we happen to end up in a 2-2 tie, I'm going to give Brennan the opportunity right now to be today's champ, but only if he can survive this first question. Otherwise, the tie break goes to you, Karina. All right. This first game is called True or Fault. This is an early test of your fandom to Team Karina, Brennan. So good luck to you, my friend. All right, Brendan, I'm going to give you three statements about Karina and her career. If the statement is true, you just say true. If the statement is not correct, please firmly say fault in your best Wimbledon lines person's voice, please. You'll need two out of three of these correct to win the tiebreak today. So here we go. First question. Brennan, Karina, as we know, is a Wimbledon champion with Lindsay Davenport, but she didn't always play with Lindsay. Karina has surprisingly played doubles with all of the following partners at Wimbledon. Patty Schneider in 2007, Mike Bryan in 2006, Yelena Yankovic in 2005, and Renee Stubbs in 2003. What? Oh, look, you already know. You jump right in there. All right, well done. What's the, do you know the incorrect one? Yeah, yeah, Yankovic. That's, that's crazy. That's crazy that you know that. Well done. I'm impressed. I, I just have to say I'm impressed. <laughs> You did play with Yankovic, though. That was a doubles partner that you had. I yeah. mean, you picked some good ones. If you're going, I will say it was very bold of you to play doubles with the amazing Patty Schneider on grass. By the way, because I think she once said, and I quote, "I'd rather eat grass than play on it," which would not be amazing. I don't know, but I, I mean, think the results speak for themselves. I don't, I don't think we lit it up at Wimbledon that year. We did well on clay <laughs> and at the US Open, but. You did. All right. You got to the semis of the French and the quarters of the U.S. Open. Yeah. So I, I understand. I was just thinking like, oh, maybe, Patty, maybe you just, you know, sit this one out. I think I'm going to I think I'm going to play with somebody else. But no, you're just so nice. That's it. We had an absolute blast. She was so nice. The French Open, this is an aside, but um, that year was one of my all time favorite memories. Why? What was it was just playing with her? Just the vibe? It was just, it was, I think I went into the tournament. I had not played a lead up. It was this one year where I just was over traveling and it's a blessing in so many ways, but it's just hard and it was hard. And I just wanted to go to the French and, and not play any tournaments in Europe. And I went and just, I decided to try to enjoy myself and sightsee and enjoy Paris. And so I went in with that attitude and I even got to Paris and my coach is like, you look happy. I'm like, I'm happy. I actually am. I'm not tired. And we just, and she was really funny and we just had so much fun and played well. And so it's just, that is one of my fondest memories. Honestly, it was a great week. We love Patty Schneider. Patty, if you're listening, you and your frizzy hair, please join this <laughs> podcast. All right, Brennan, question number two, Karina's last tour event was the 2007 US Open with Megan Shaughnessy. Is that true or false? That is true. And I'm trying to remember they lost second or third round, but it wasn't first. Yeah, Karina. So had you decided prior to the US Open that that was going to be your last event? Yes, I decided in Toronto. So a couple of weeks before, but I didn't tell Megan until we were done. Because um, I just didn't want her to, I don't know, feel any extra pressure or feel like it was any different. 
Wow. It's so interesting that you say that. I mean, was there something in Toronto that you just said, all right, it's just, you know, I'm just done. That's it. I think that for me, it had been a couple years coming. I just, after my illness and my shoulder surgeries and just, I I had fun playing doubles solely for a period of time, but it was just kind of wearing on me. And um, I think in my heart, I was just, you know, I always liked the balance of singles and doubles and just, and it was 29 at the time. And it's just been a long, a long time. And I've been through some decent amount of adversity in the last few years of my career. And I just, I wasn't enjoying it. And I just felt like, I don't know. I just remember sitting on, I think I was in like a hotel. I was in a hotel room and just meditating and just had this moment where I'm like, I'm done. That's it. And a couple of weeks later, that's, that's what happened. You either go the Chris Everett route where you announce it a year in advance and you, and you get everyone to come watch and say goodbye, or you Jennifer Capriati or, you know, that kind of Monica Sellis where you just, that's it. And you just, you know, you wish you had that moment. So yeah, very interesting that that's, uh, it's different for everybody. I felt lucky that I, it felt very clear in my mind at the time. I think I was knocking, I was toying with the idea for a while, I will say. And, um, I just kept it kind of extending it for various reasons. And I think finally it just, I had that moment of certainty and decisiveness and never looked back. And I feel blessed in that sense where it was just very definitive in my mind and I never second guessed it. Good for you. All right. Brendan, you've already won the tie break. It's 2-0, but we're going to finish this last question. We spoke about Victoria Azarenka earlier. Karina is actually tied second all time with Vika Azarenka for most junior Grand Slam victories ever at four. Is that true or fault? Oof. This was not in the autobiography. Um, <laughs> true. Do you know the answer, Karina? No idea. You don't. I, oh, wow. Well, you've already, you crushed this, Brennan. It's true. Well done. Uh, very impressive. Only second to Anastasia Pavluchenkova, who was number one with five. You won four junior grand slams, actually. And I want everyone to know this. In 1995, you won the French, U.S., and the Australian Open. You lost one grand slam, junior grand slam doubles match. Yeah, you lost to Kara Black, who, you know, former number one as well. Yeah, I mean... It, oh, it sounds better when you just, you blanket statement and you don't like specify the doubles. <laughs> <It's just> kind of, <laughs> I like it better that way. It sounds better. Well, good job, Brennan. You have the tiebreaker. So let's get into the game. I'm going to start with you, Brennan. It's your first question about Karina. Karina would go on to make the final of the Croatian Bowl Ladies Open three years in a row and would win both the singles and doubles title there during her career. That first final in 1997 would see her lose 7-6 in the third to a young teenager that would start her WTA career at that very event and would go on to make the semifinals of the 2017 Australian Open an astonishing 20 years later. Brennan, which player did Karina face in two of those three Croatian ladies Open finals? Oh, geez. Mirjana Lucic? Absolutely. Well done. You're killing this today, Brennan. Oh, she's been missing in action in 2018. I miss those big old sports goggles, glasses that she played in. I wish she'd come back. (laughs) Karina, I know you had more success in doubles, but you were such a great singles player as well. How did you get your start in tennis growing up? My dad. So my, my father's Romanian and I come from an athletic background. My grandfather was actually a gymnast in Romania and should have gone to the Olympics. Um, The communist government wouldn't pay for him to go, but he just had that sort of 
that gene pool. My dad played tennis and volleyball in Romania and um, he was very driven, very intense. And um, I had an older brother who played tennis and I think he just sort of, it was in the family. And I think he put a racquetball racket in my hand on the tennis court when I was two and a half. Did you always know that you would turn pro? Was that, at what point in your mind was it that, hey, I just won three out of four grand slams. I should probably make this a job. Not even then, actually. I um, I didn't know that I wanted to turn pro. I just was trying to do the best I could with <laughs> and, and work hard. And that was sort of embedded in me. And I think that was the work ethic from my parents. That's where that came from. And um, I would have been fine getting a college scholarship. I was just trying to be the best I could be. And then I, th- when I was 18, I actually signed to go to UCLA. Oh, and I signed early in November. So actually I was 17 at the time and I was super excited, got full ride the whole deal. And between that point and I think May of the following year, I was playing some futures and satellites and started doing well and played Key Biscayne. And um, then I was, then I got to be top hundred and that's when I just said, okay, well, if I main draw the grand slams and I've worked so hard up until now, I should probably just try to see where this goes. And that was one of the hardest phone calls I had to make because I had to call Stella Sampras, the coach of UCLA, and tell her that I was going to turn pro and not go to college. Yeah, that's a tough one. What a dynasty team, though. It's a little bit of a regret, actually, though, because I I wish I had had enough belief in myself because I could have done both. I didn't have to turn pro, and I think I would have really enjoyed the college experience, at least for just a year. That's probably what I would have done, but I would have. I always liked playing on a team, and I played high school tennis as much as I could. Um, so I'm just, I actually, that's probably my one regret, although I feel like everything worked out the way it was supposed to, but that I didn't go to college for that year. Cause I think I would have just, it, I would have really enjoyed it and I would have been fine tennis wise, but at the time I was, I had just worked so hard and I had started playing qualifying for, you know, $10,000 satellites in Poland. And I just didn't want to really, like, I just I had this insecurity of going backwards and, and I wish I just had had more belief in my abilities because I would have been fine. Karina, I'd like to revisit some of your great singles wins that you had uh, in your career, especially in 1998. You had a career high of 29 in the world. You beat some great names, Chanda Rubin, Jennifer Capriotti, Lisa Raymond's. You played back-to-back tournaments in Tokyo Bowl, making the, the finals, beat some great players there. You even took Steffi Graf to three sets at the US Open that year, which was amazing. What was that year like for you? Was, uh, the progression keeps going. 98 was such a fantastic singles year for you. Yeah, I think that was a stepping stone for me. And it was a couple years of being on the tour. I turned pro in 96 and um, did not have outstanding results out of the gate. I think the second I turned pro, I felt a lot of pressure. I went from high school and I just felt more balanced when I was playing in high school and playing those professional tournaments early on and then turning pro and having that be my sole job Mm. just felt overwhelming for a period of time. So 98 was kind of me coming into my own and feeling more comfortable and more confident in my abilities. And um, that was just, you know, it was 
cool to see. And that's the great thing about being a tennis player is that you can see that tangible improvement and the wins and the losses and kind of working your way up the rankings. And at that point in my career, it was still a teenager and it was fun for me to be able to have that experience. I mean, you you had the great experience of playing so many number ones as well. You played Capriati, Venus, Serena, Moresmo, Davenport, Sanchez Vicario. I think you already said it earlier, but I'll ask again, who was the trickiest type player for you? Uh, in your career singles wise it could be it could be one of those it could be anybody was there somebody that you would see the draw and say oh my gosh not not her not that type of player Lindsay Lindsay, yeah yeah Lindsay yeah she was the toughest for me to play um and for various reasons I mean number one just because she was so good and she was so solid and so powerful off the ground that it was just hard it was our the matchup was really hard for me anyway and then we were doubles partners and friends and we actually had to play, we didn't play each other a ton in singles, but you know, there were definitely first round of Wimbledon the year, you know, we were defending champions and doubles. And just, those were the times where you were just bummed because <laughs> um, we were friends and yeah. doubles partners. And it was just, it was also, it was physically challenging because she was so good and emotionally too, because of our relationship. If you think back your first rounds at a lot of those grand slams, you played Davenport, you've played Steffi Graf in a first round. You played, I believe uh, Serena Williams in a first round as well we talked about that yeah so yeah really terrible first round draws for you terrible yeah <laughs> really terrible horrible for a while there it was it was sort of we laugh about it <laughs> and that was at a time too part of it was at that time they only seated 16 singles players mm-hmm. so now they see 32 and a couple of those grand slams I would have been the way they do it now I would have been seated but at the time you know they only seated 16 so those first round matchups a lot of times were were really tricky on both sides of the ledger sometimes who knows yeah all right Brennan is is winning today big time so Karina we got to get you on the board. Here's your first question. I asked Brennan what some of his favorite memories of you as a player were, and most of his answers were big matches from your doubles career. So I thought I'd honor those memories with a question about doubles. In April of 2000, you became the 12th player in WTA history to become the number one doubles player in the world. You'll either know this answer right away, or I'm hoping you'll give your best big babe era educated guess. You were number 12, Karina, but who was the 11th player in WTA history to become number one? Um, Martina Hingis. Good guess. Good guess. You gave me big babe tennis. I did. And then I maybe probably should have Serena Williams. Anna Kornikova is the answer. She was 11. Okay. And you were 12. I know. And such a bad rap for Anna. She got to number one. I mean, great doubles player. You played doubles with her, I think, as well. She was, I think, eight in number eight in singles. She was definitely top 10. So the year 2000 starts. Without the bang that everyone had thought that Y2K was going to bring, you and Lindsay got to the semis of the Australian Open. You retired against Hingis and Pierce in that match in 2000. But then you'd go on an 11-match win streak, winning back-to-back events in Oklahoma and Indian Wells. You then play Miami and make the quarters with Elena Likosova, and you become the number one doubles player in the world with those results. Were you in Miami when those rankings came out on that Monday? I was home, but I lived in Boca Raton, so about an hour north of Miami, and I had a feeling that I I was knocking on the door, and I remember coming home from practice and checking the rankings on that Monday morning. So you didn't know? You didn't know you had to make a certain amount to, I, to be there? Is that- I don't remember 
remember knowing. I, I remember thinking it was going to be close, but I don't remember knowing beforehand. When you see your name on top of that list, what was your celebration like? What was that feeling? Hard to put into words it, because as tennis players, this is your life for so long. I played my first tournament when I was six and, you know, there were a lot of sacrifices that went into it. I starting, I think in eighth grade, I'd wake up before school and go practice or go to the gym, go practice after school, go to the gym, do homework. You know, you missed out and traveled a lot and missed out on things, you know, typical high school experiences. So I think to accomplish something like that was just it, it felt like all that hard work had paid off and those sacrifices and something, you know, tangible. And that's the cool thing. Like we mentioned, just that the ranking and some things that you, you feel like can't ever be taken away from you. What was it about doubles that made you such a force? What was it about your game that you think that propelled you to number one? Good partners. <laughs> um, and I think that for sure. And also... I just always liked doubles better. So I think that that helped. I preferred being on the court with someone. I just always felt very isolated playing singles and I'm more of a people person and more of just, I enjoyed the team sports a little bit more playing them. And so tennis and doubles had the closest to that and, and that element. And I just, I had a feel for the game and I enjoyed it. And I think that that translated. Yeah, for sure. You played with, we've talked about it already. You've played with so many amazing players, the absolute best players in the world. You picked some great partners. I'd like to play a little doubles word association. There are just too many great players and matches of yours to cover today. So we'll just name a few. I'm going to give you a name of a player that you've played doubles with over the years. You just tell me a word, something about their game, a moment that you remember that you shared that springs to mind when I say their name. So just a couple. Let's start with Venus Williams. Powerhouse. You played Fed Cup with her. Fed Cup. Yeah, Moscow. I do remember that. There are very few people in her entire career that she's played doubles with. You're on that list. Yeah, yeah. she plays exclusively yeah. with Serena. So that's a, that's a good memory to have that few don't. Well, any, and any, I think anytime we get to play, my Fed Cup experiences were some of the most special of my career. Again, team atmosphere and love that part of it. But just, you know, she, Venus and Serena just have this aura to them anyway, and always have just a confidence and just in her game, the power of it and just the way she plays is so impressive. Monica Sellis. Fun. <laughs> I just, I had fun with Monica. She just, she kind of had this fun personality that I think you saw behind the scenes sometimes and not necessarily, she just was kind of quirky and fun and we giggle. And I just, that's the word that comes to my mind. Mike Bryan. I'm picturing him to be a brother to you almost like, a, yeah. like such a force. We um, grew up playing together. You know, we knew each other. I think we played USTA, USTA camps when we were kids. So, you know, they went on to have so much success, but I think in my mind, we were always just these kids that, you know, played tennis together at those USTA camps when we were probably 10 or 11 years old. Renee Stubbs. Um, experience. She was such an experienced doubles player. Our games, I don't think, combined very well because we had similar games in some respects. So I think that that was, yeah, the one-handed backhand and who's going to play the ad side. And that was a little bit tricky. Um, but I had, we won Sydney together and that was like my first tournament you did. winning after I was sick. So that is always a special memory. We'll do a couple more. How about Mary Pierce? Underrated. In doubles. I think so. Yeah. She has a couple grand slams. Yeah, maybe 
I just, I think she was so good. And maybe that's just me thinking back now, but I just, I felt like she just, I mean, she hit the ball a ton. And especially from a doubles perspective, I know, I think maybe underrated just in my mind of like how people perceived her because she was obviously a phenomenal singles player, but she had, I I don't know, I just, over the course of her career, people talked so much about stuff off the court with her. And I think that she was so strong on the court in so many ways. It's a good word. Uh, We'll finish with Yelena Yankovic. Talented. Yeah, totally. You know, the hands were so good. I just, topspin lobs. That would be the word that, the two words that caught, she had the most amazing topspin lob and she could just feather it from anywhere in the court. So I have strong recollections of watching those and with a smile on my face, go over our opponent's head. Who had the best volley that you played with? I mean, Renee. Yeah, Renee yeah was, she had a fantastic volley. There was reflexes. Yeah, yeah great for sure. Thanks for that little walk down doubles road. I love that. It was amazing. You also, uh, before we go off into the next question, we talked about your first round matches. This was insane as well. I, this has to be a record, I would say. You and Mike played against Renee and Bob in the quarters of the US Open one year and you beat them. So that was that was a match. But the very next year, you go and you have to play first round Navratilova and Bob Bryan. So you have you, Martina Navratilova, Bob and Mike Bryan in a first round US Open mixed doubles match. That's insane. Insane. Yeah. I mean, you've played Martina many yeah. times. I mean, what, what was that match like? Did you all just kind of chuckle and say, ha, well, you know, <laughs> let's just have fun, I guess. I mean, the draw gods hate it. Yeah. And I mean, Mike and Bob playing against each other was always tricky. I mean, that was just strange for them anyway. And it was just funny to be on the same side of the net, just in the mental gymnastics that went on. (laughs) (laughs) And that was just so, that was a fun match. Great one. Third question, Brennan, this one's your last one about Karina. Brennan, you told me one of your first tennis memories, as you mentioned, was Davenport versus Hingis in 1996 in Chicago. So a Lindsay Davenport question for you. How many total doubles titles do Karina and Lindsay have together? This is for the win, by the way, since Karina got that last one wrong. If you get this right. So they have Wimbledon. They have Bali. Oh, um, I'm going to say three. Karina, do you know? It's more than three. It's more than three. Yes, it is. It's five. Good job. (laughs) Greater than. (laughs) It's greater than. Yes. So we have Wimbledon. 99, you killed it, guys. I mean, it was Wimbledon, Stanford, San Diego, Indian Wells uh, in 2000. And then you showed up to support Lindsay and Bali. Bali. I know. It was a sacrifice, but someone had to do it. I know. Just you had to go all the way to Bali and just, oh, man. Yeah, it was hard. I mean, she's like, hey, I have a kid. I'm coming back. You want to join me in Bali? And you're like, oh, gosh, anywhere but Bali. But yeah, good job. My arm. I'll do it. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, let's win. Uh, 14 doubles titles total, 99 Wimbledon and the 01 Australian Open. How did you meet Lindsay? How did that partnership form? Uh, from what I, my memory, I, we met, we played each other before we kind of knew each other. And then we played team tennis together in Sacramento. And that was kind of where we sort of got to know each other better. And I think that might've been 97 or 98. And then she had actually emailed me, I think in 99 and asked if I- Email in 99, that good old AOL. You just, you cranked it right up and it was like, you know, you're like, oh, let me, let me try and log on. I think Lindsay- gonna email me 
that was like a big thing back then. Exactly. And it was funny because she had emailed me about playing doubles at the French Open and Wimbledon. And I had already committed to playing the French Open with someone else. So I said, I'm good to go. It was tempting to back out of my commitment for, <laughs> um, for the French Open, but Wimbledon was, um, I was again, twist my arm. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll play with you. Sure. Definitely one of the great doubles teams in WTA history, for sure. Your first time playing with Lindsay was in 1998 in Philadelphia. That's actually right. You're right. And how did we do there? You don't remember? I love that. Well, the first round, you you beat a solid team. So you won your first match together, which I'm assuming the first time playing with a partner, it's like, oh, we have to win this first match or she'll never want to play with me again. Gosh, it's so funny because I always think of Wimbledon the first time we played together. You lost to Celis and Zvareva. So, you know, just two people that you shouldn't have lost to, really. I mean... (laughs) I mean, how embarrassing that you lost to Monica Sellis and Natasha Zvareva. Yeah, you're right. What are your memories from that Wimbledon title? Any great stories from those two weeks? It was one of my favorite Grand Slams. Lindsay won the singles that year, so she got a whole bunch of trophies. Okay, so my memory is stress. Honestly, it was so stressful. At that point, I don't think I'd been past the third round of a Grand Slam. So I felt a lot of pressure to keep up with her. And she was doing so well in singles at the time. And then the draw kind of opened up for us too, which added a whole nother level of stress and pressure. Because every time we stepped on the court, it felt like we really should be winning this match you know, on paper. And it was my first opportunity really to win a Grand Slam. So the whole thing just felt very anxiety ridden and stressful. And it was so awesome to finally accomplish that and and win a Grand Slam. So the relief and the exuberance at the end was palpable. But that's just those two weeks, I just remember being just stressed. Well, you won your first match, Love and Love. You probably don't remember that. So I don't know how stressed out you were Marlene Weingartner. Was that my opponent? <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. Poor Marlene Weingartner. She's listening to this and, and sc- screw you, Karina. That's what she just said. <laughs> I, I remember that one, but I, I, it was your story very... doesn't match up Karina Morario with your stress level of love. I and know. Love. <laughs> I know. I promise you, I am actually, I'm telling the truth. No. Well, I mean, certain, you know, matches are of course easier but knowing that we had that chance and you just don't know how many, how often those chances are going to come along over the course of your career. So that's where you just, you want to capitalize on them. Have you been back to Wimbledon since you retired? I have not. And I keep saying, I want to go at some point and take our kids. Don't you have a special key or there's something that you have, right? You have like the special password to get into somewhere. I wish. No, there's strength there. They are. And then that, 2001 Australian Open, that mixed title, Ellis Ferreira. 2001 was um, was an interesting year for you. So it started off fantastic. Yeah, it started off well in a lot of ways. But Ellis was really, really talented. He was crazy talented, amazing hands. And that Australian Open was bittersweet because we did lose that final to Venus and Serena. And then it was sort of felt redeeming in some ways to be able to come back a couple of days later and and win the mix well yeah i mean you're you're getting deep into both draws of grand slams i mean you're one of the best doubles players in the world at that point so all right last question karina your last question about brennan brennan is an avid reader and has read almost every tennis autobiography he can get his hands on he lists your book in 2010 living through the racket how i survived leukemia and rediscovered myself as one of his favorites 
Which of these tennis autobiographies did Brennan say was also atop his list of all-time favorites? I'm going to give you multiple choice. Was it A, Elena Dokic's Unbreakable? Was it B, Monica Seles, Getting a Grip on My Mind, My Body, Myself? Was it C, Sharapova's Unstoppable? Or D, Andre Agassi's Open? Andre Agassi's Open is my guess. It's a good guess. Brennan, what was, what's the answer? Well, this is a WTA podcast right now. Monica Sells. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. What a, what a great one. And did you, Brennan, did you see Andrea Pekovic came out with a book too? It's in German. So good luck to me, but I, I, I bought it. I'm still waiting for it to come in. So maybe we can, we can just try to like decipher what it says. <laughs> you, you mentioned um, reading Karina's book a couple of times now. I've read those books we just mentioned, and I, I think what all those books have in common, really, aside from the Sharapova book, is that they divulge a piece of themselves, and they're quite vulnerable to the reader. Karina, that's what you kind of did in your book. Well, very much so. And in May of 2001, Karina, I was in and out of chemotherapy appointments with my own mother as she was battling both lung and brain cancer. I remember vividly being in the hospital one night watching the evening news when they reported that you had been diagnosed with leukemia. And I remember telling my mom what I was watching and she asked me how old you were. And I explained that you were only 23 and you were fresh off of winning the Australian Open. And she said to me, she'll make it. And I remember that very much. And it was, you know, I, I have chills right now just thinking of that moment because I don't think about that. And when I when I knew you were coming on today, those memories flood back and they're great memories because she's still here today. And and you're still here today. You're you're a fighter. And um obviously that was pretty shocking news. Karina, what was that time like in, in your life? Um gosh, it it you know, it's almost 20 years ago now, which is so crazy to think about. But I think that just shocking, really the shock of just going from being completely healthy and successful and having my career trajectory be going in a certain way and to have everything just fall apart with that diagnosis and how I was feeling physically and also really scary at the time because I had let it, you know, I think my cancer was pretty advanced at that stage because I had sort of ignored some of the early symptoms and I was in the hospital for a month that first month as soon as I was diagnosed because things were pretty dire at that point so just the shock and the fear and the subsequent just trying to put my life back together after I felt like so much of it and had fallen apart and so much of my identity was tied to my tennis and my career and what I did for a living, that it was hard to kind of come out of that. Yeah. You're out of action from May, 2001 to 2002, the lead up to the US Open. You start your comeback by taking a wild card in LA and you lost it very close, 7-5 in the third match to a good Swiss player. What was it like coming back after all that? Was it um, a, probably a different mindset yeah, for sure. And I think I played team tennis before that match in LA, before that tournament. And I remember just having the best time, just mm. thoroughly enjoying being out there. And team tennis was such a perfect entree back into professional tennis because it was fun and energetic and music and you're playing doubles and mixed and singles. And it was, and just, again, you do sense the theme that I liked team, <laughs> the team atmosphere. Um, so there, I just remember being really happy and appreciative 
And I think I saw the sport in a different light from that point on and just the blessing that it was to me and how grateful I was to have a healthy body at that point and to have overcome what I did because you know, a year prior I had no strength and I couldn't get up and walk 20 yards and I was in and out of the hospital. So to be able to just be able-bodied and strong and, and compete at that level felt like such an accomplishment too. Well, the lights were there because your next match was at the US Open. It was that epic night match. I just want to set the scene for everybody who's listening. So cue the Olympic themed like chariots of fire or something, even though we can't play chariots of fire because I'll be sued. But think of think of that in your head, at least Hamid. We all know that one. It's a night match. The US Open first round is Serena Williams and she's wearing the iconic black cat suit. It's Karina's <laughs> second match back with the raucous New York City crowd. Karina, please relive that moment for me. And if also, if you YouTube this moment too, there's also this great, I'm sure you've seen it as well, Brennan. I don't know. You, you're down to love and you break back and the crowd goes absolutely insane. And you give the crowd like a WWE, like wrestler. I can't hear you. <laughs> I can't hear you. Please take us back to that, that match. Um, that was me being facetious because I, you know, got a game off Serena, which felt like a tall task at the time, but, um, just before she ran away with the match, um, gosh, that was, again, it, I remember being at home before the tournament, cause I actually had to have a bone marrow test before that U S open and make sure my cancer was still in remission and hearing the news that I had to play Serena and being bummed about it. And then reframing it in my mind and just what an awesome opportunity it was and then to be able to play that first night match and it was after 9-11 too in 2001 so this was the following year and they had this whole ceremony you know recognizing and honoring those and so it was just emotional all the way around and the cat suit you mentioned because we were in I wrote about this in my book but we were in the locker room about an hour before the match and I'm you know usually you're dressed and ready to go and you're warming up and doing all the things and I and you have those little shorts that you put on under your skirt so that's what you know we usually do is you you get dressed and I'm watching her in the locker room thinking she had a warm up jacket on and her little shorts I'm thinking when's she going to put her skirt on that's just and usually you're like, again, and then it's half an hour and it's 15 minutes. I'm like, this is the weirdest thing. Like, I just, I've never seen this before. <laughs> like, She's not fully dressed and we're supposed to go on the court in a few minutes. And I went out to do my pre-match interview and I step on the court and then she comes out and I remember thinking, oh, she's not wearing a skirt over those shorts. And then she took the warm-up jacket off and unveiled the catsuit. But at the time, I didn't even know it was a catsuit because she had the jacket on. So um, that will be a memory forever as well. But it was so special for me to be in New York on that stage because I had been to the U.S. Open the year before while I was sick. No hair, just totally weak. And to be able to return to the U.S. Open on that stage and, and have that crowd and that energy. And it was it was such a great experience. Oh, iconic. That whole match that night, that outfit, all of those things. Brennan, you said you got to reread Karina's book last night. What are some thoughts to share of what we've just been chatting about? Yeah, kind of one thing that I you know really loved about the book, it just the way you framed the book, tennis was absolutely a part of it, but it, it wasn't the overriding factor. You know, it, it wasn't a, a series of 
you were counting matches and your victories and maybe some of those losses. It was more really about your journey and that tennis was a part of it. And I really liked how you just said reframing as far as, gosh, how unfortunate that this was going to be your first match back, but then being able to reframe it and think, gosh, a year ago, this is where I was. And that really resonated me. Amazing. To finish up today, we have just a couple fan mail questions. You've got mail. First one is from Carol from Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, and we're staying on the same thought process. She says, I remember Jennifer Capriati winning the 2001 French Open and dedicating her victory to you and holding up a get well soon Karina sign. What did that mean to have player support like that? And when was the last time you spoke to Jennifer? I haven't spoken to her in a long time. And funnily enough, at that time, I didn't know Jennifer that well, but she did hold up that sign. And I, I believe it was before her quarterfinal match against Serena. And I just remember feeling in the hospital, just this huge outpouring of support, which was surprising to me. I remember my agent at the time when I first got, went into the hospital saying we should, you know, draft a press release. And I was thinking, why are you going to do it? Like draft a press release. It's no one's going to care. It's felt very insignificant. I felt insignificant and the news felt devastating to me, but in the grand scheme of things. And as soon as that came out, I mean, my parents answering answering machine, (laughs) that's, that's how far back we're going (laughs) was swamped with messages. And I had balloons and cards and flowers and people just players and, and all these coming to see me, even Kim Po flew from Paris to come see me in the hospital in Miami and then flew back for the French open. Wow. And it, it was so meaningful to me. And I felt, I feel like that helped me get better in a lot of ways and helped me fight. Cause when you just have that outpouring and the bolstering of it helps your attitude. And it gave me something to do in the hospital too. And we'd read the cards and the letters and it was so humbling for me as well. And, um, it was special. And so Jennifer, you know, doing that was just representing all the players, I think. And I had posters and people signing things for me and just saying, you know, that they were thinking of me and and it it meant the world to me at that time because I felt very alone and isolated. It's a huge moment and it definitely showed how much support that you had and how loved you were by not just your fan base, but your colleagues too, which is a, a big testament. So, Brennan, you're going to have the last question today. Last question to you. Gosh. How about just simply, when was the last time you played tennis? That's a great question. And I, it's been probably a year and a half, I'm going to say. Uh, yeah. And I, I think it's been once, probably in the last three years. Yeah. Are, you're a mom now. Are your kids playing tennis? Is that... Not really. They're seven and six. And I have a very creative seven-year-old boy and um, our daughter's a little bit more into sports and they've taken a few tennis lessons and I just haven't gone out there much with them. And I I keep saying I, I want to start hitting some balls and, and getting back out there. I think in that particular season when my kids were little, if I had an hour of time, um, that wasn't my first choice because I did it for so long. So I would go to the gym or go take a yoga yoga class or do something else. So, um, yeah. it's been, it's been a while and I would be part of, I think my hesitance to even go back out there right now is just knowing how bad it would feel <laughs> and knowing how frustrating that would be that sensation. So I I've gotten rackets strung. So I feel like making steps towards 
getting back out on the court. I'm taking golf lessons now. So I've taken a couple of those okay. and that's kind of my, my new undertaking. So we did say at the beginning that you were going to make an announcement. So I think let's just continue the thread. Maybe what we do is you get back on the tennis court. As soon as they have a legends event, you go back to Wimbledon. Like you said, you've been wanting to go. You call up Lindsay, you call up uh, Kim Poe. We get Robin White. We get all the whole band back together and you enter legends doubles and you get to relive that moment, especially for the fans that would be pretty cool but 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 more so for you in theory sounds amazing i have a feeling it's not going to happen but i i just i like the way it's going it just it sounds really good oh wow guys all right what a fun hour i want to thank my guests for joining us today we learned a lot and that's what makes tennis so fun you can find brennan on twitter at at b marsh 1983 thank you for joining today brennan thank you this is great karina really appreciate it our guest today does not have an answering machine. She doesn't have social media. She has nothing. So there's absolutely no way you will ever tell Karina how awesome this interview was today. But still, I want to thank you so much, Karina Morario, for your time today. You were fantastic. Thank you. It was so fun. My cheeks hurt from smiling so much. It was a blast. Thanks for having me. And while you're on Instagram, everyone, please follow us at Fantastic Tennis Pod or on Twitter at Fan Tennis Pod. My name is John Garica. Find me on Instagram and let me know which player you'd like to meet for a future episode. Thank you all for listening. This has been fantastic. Thank you.